Greetings, I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. For all the returning listeners and subscribers, thank you for coming back. For those new to the channel, thank you for taking a moment to check us out. If you dig what we're doing, please hit like, and of course, the subscribe that goes a long way in promoting the channel. No TIR fam with me tonight in the main show. Toussaint will be joining me in the champagne room as we will take a deep dive into the recent Cat Williams, Shannon Sharp interview. Um, I really look forward to watching that with you guys. That was all the chatter in the TIR group chat with the Quintern sending a WTF message. What the hell is going on with Cat Williams? So this feels like an assault. So that'll be going on in the champagne room later. But now for the main show. I see you guys already talking about it in the chat. We're going to talk a little bit about decolonization with our good friend, my good friend, returning guest. This is from his most recent piece that he co-wrote in his Substack. To the extent that decolonization endorses a particular political message, the field manufactures consent by imposing implicit acceptance of the narrative over an entire network of publishers, scholars, institutes, students, and administrators. To push against this is by no means a claim that Russia is innocent or justified to invade another country, to seize its assets, is egregious. But to view this conflict through a materialist lens with history in mind clarifies a different set of factors and complicates the dominant civilizationist narratives in the West. Democracy versus autocracy. As well as the nationalist narratives that prevail and are reinforced in the academy. Whether it be the Russian claim to protect ethnic Russians in Ukraine or Ukraine's specific narrative of national sovereignty and exclusive nationhood. Such narratives eclipse how the layered economic, political, and territorial causes, crises, unleashed by the dismemberment of the USSR within US-led globalization shaped the conflict. That, again, is a quote from our guest's latest piece, The Poverty of Decolonization, it uh, goes into their opinion that decolonization isn't applicable to Slavic studies. Please welcome returning show guest, author, and my good friend, Alexander Herbert. The applause is really humbling. I've never, <laughs> I've never been introduced to such an applause before. You know why? Because you've never done a speaking engagement with me. It's true. It's very true. We have to. We have. Can we set something up in uh, the in New England? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I come to the West Coast at least once a year, so it was off too. I want to go back to Mexico too. <laughs> I, I want to. I actually want to live in Mexico. There's <laughs> a lot of. You know, when you come back. Uh, this next time when you come back, we'll go south because you guys went to TJ. We'll go yeah. south to Ensenada. Um, it's it's one of the most beautiful drives uh, that you'll make in uh, in North America. I promise. I believe it. I'll be back. I'll definitely be back. It was fun. Um, I I look. I had a ball with you guys here. Um, 
you guys and all your dietary restrictions. We made it work. We got uh, laughed at, laughed at by many a Mexican chef too. <laughs> it was worth it. You're a what? <laughs> they were like, no cheese at all. Yeah. Uh, so in your piece, you know, let's get back to the seriousness at hand, and, and I have a feeling we're gonna have some viewers and some comments because you guys definitely talk about the Soviet Union, but you guys took on kind of a whole field, a whole school of thought uh, in this piece. I'm assuming because you were at the this recent conference, um, is it A S S? What is it again? ACES, A S E E E S, Association of Slavic Eastern European and Eurasian Studies. I do feel kind of bad Kuba's not here, but you know he's a political science guy, not necessarily a Slavic studies guy. Um, what prompted you to write this piece? Did you have such a horrible time at the conference, or is that quite the contrary? I had a blast, actually. I mean, I, I've been to ACs many times. It's like the, you know, it's the um, the institution, the event for people who study the post-socialist world more broadly, post-Soviet world more broadly, history, anthropology, literature, uh, uh, sociology, po political science, economy, uh, economy, et cetera. All the people, they come to ACs um, to workshop their new projects, to meet their colleagues, to uh, work out new book ideas, everything. And it's huge. I mean, there there are, um, uh, I was told around 2,000 people that participated, over 200 different panels and roundtables. It's a giant endeavor. Um, it's usually held in one of the major hotels in a downtown city. This year it was Philadelphia. Last year it was Chicago. Next year it's going to be Boston. I was in uh, New Orleans one year and Oof. Cisco in another. Um, but it's, you know, it's huge is what I'm trying to say. And so it it is a fun kind of thing to do. You go and for me, I meet up with people that I went to graduate school and I listen to what they're working on. But then it's also the opportunity to go and uh, provide some critique to others work and some field in a cordial way. Because uh, we don't want to be, you know, don't want to enter into a screaming match while we're there because, you know, professionalism and all that, which is fine. Um, and so me, Brian, my co-author, who uh, um, uh, unfortunately isn't with us, although uh, he lives in Tbilisi, Georgia, so his his time zone is. It's a it's a different day and it's like early in the morning. It yeah. was it would look if he would have been able to make it, it would have been a hell of a, a hell of a get. But uh, he's here in yeah. spirit. Yeah, he he also does the reimagining Soviet Georgia podcast. If you I'll, I'll shout all that out at the end. But uh, in any case, we were there and um, we are Marxists, as you know, as I'm sure you all can tell by my beautiful picture of Marx here. I thought you guys said your sweater. <laughs> Maybe by my sweater, too. Um and uh, and so we were there and we went to these different panels and roundtables and we would meet up afterwards because sometimes we went to different. You know, and, and every hour there's like 20 going on 
And so I would usually go to the panels that were on environmental history and political economy. And Brian went to the ones that were about nation building and memory, et cetera. And so we would meet afterwards and we would like rip these panels and in, in, uh, uh, <laughs> panelists apart. Mm-hmm. Not because like we don't trust their scholarship or anything, but because we thought that the the level of analysis that they were applying was not only kind of essentialist, but it was also heavily politicized. And so the, the theme of this year's ACES conference was decolonization, which already we were kind of skeptical of because, you know, you can look at the program of the panels and what they're all titled and who's presenting. And one thing that immediately stood out was that none of these scholars of um, uh, of the post-Soviet world are engaging with post-colonial scholars or the theory of decolonization from, you know, Africa or South America or Asia or wherever you are. The places that that created post-colonial theory were sort of absent here, <laughs> right? And so, so this for- wasn't about this wasn't about Africa. This wasn't about um the the americas you know uh, this was totally about just slavic nations and the ussr project so the the decolonization um uh, theme came you know of course from russia's escalation of its conflict with ukraine uh and the urging of people in our field to kind of to decolonize the field and, and the assumption that you know since forever uh attention has been disproportionately placed on russia at the expense of the other soviet peoples like ukraine not just ukraine but also uzbekistan tajikistan the baltics etc etc that's a fair invitation you know to say let's decenter russia and look at the other republics that's fine we we accept that um but what we saw was that when these some of these scholars would write, you know, uh, theorize about the creation of the Ukrainian nation or the, the 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 history of the Georgian nation and and yada yada, a lot of it w- were taking these sort of essentialist positions of uh, of what constitutes a nation in terms of abstract ideology and not in terms of what materially constitutes a nation. And so what we wanted to do was to kind of dial back this cultural, what we call it cultural analysis, it's cultural history, um, which I can also get into what that means. Um, uh, Dial back this cultural history to look at, well, what does it mean if we kind of essentialize the nation state uh, or the nation, what it means to be a national as opposed to applying a material analysis to the basis of national claims. So, you know, one example that we that I I sort of gave in a cheeky way in the article is, you know, there's been plenty of books and articles about, you know, uh, borscht as a Ukrainian dish that embodies the Ukrainian nationality or Ukrainian nationhood. And, you know, really? Borscht as as this sort of abstract food is what embodies Ukrainian nationhood. I think that, you know, you sort of get these arguments and you roll with them where like a material analysis of borscht as it constitutes Ukrainian nation would look at something like the political economy of 
agricultural production in Ukraine as opposed to, you know, Russia or any other place that claims borscht as its as its national dish. Um, trade within uh, Ukraine and how that facilitated certain agricultural practices uh, within uh, Ukraine. You can look at class analysis within um, a place like Ukraine. So applying a more rigorous material analysis to what constitutes the basis of a nation state is is what we were asking for uh, from the field. And it's not like we made this up out of nowhere. The, 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 the urging to do this, the call to do this for us, for Brian and I, came very much from reading the theories of decolonization, post-colonial theory. If you read someone like Kwame Nkrumah, for example, mm -hmm. you know, the entire basis of his not just Ghanaian nationalism, but pan-Africanism is based on a material understanding of African resources, of Africa's relationship to the IMF and the World Bank, uh, or, or Ghana's relationship to the IMF and the World Bank. And so we want to we wanted to introduce these kind of material factors into the study of post-socialist uh, post um, decolonizing moments because to not do so, right, to admit the material aspect of it is, a, is implicitly aiding in the American rewriting of those post-socialist narratives. Um, because once you start digging into material analysis, you look at things like privatization. You look at the role of the IMF in places like the Baltics. Uh, NATO comes up, right, as a major source of funding. Um, and so it starts to challenge this dominant cultural perspective that, you know, Putin is, uh, uh, is you know, Hitler incarnate and um, Russians are bad, right? The Russians are all guilty by association. These broad cultural uh, uh, claims that aren't rooted in materiality, they have political implications, not just for, um, you know, uh, uh, policymakers in Washington, but the ways that Americans and Westerners see and understand Russia or Ukraine or, you know, the Baltics or wherever. I mean, how do you think as a person that does, you know, you teach. How do you think Americans understand currently Russia? Do you think Americans are still stuck in kind of a Cold War vision of the USSR and see Putin as some sort of uh, return to Stalinism? I think that, you know, again, to, to go on this historiographical uh, uh plane that we're that we were arguing you know one of the criticisms that came up is that you know we didn't cite soviet marxist literature in our uh writing soviet um materialist marxist uh historians and therefore you know our argument is discredited but but again we weren't wow. making that we weren't making that argument about um uh about their relevance, we're making the argument about its political implication um, today. And so that that Cold War position, right, the, the position, and even if I did cite, you know, any Soviet era uh, economist, materialist, 
the the sort of reflexive response of the American and Western Academy academics is to say, well, you know, those numbers are inflated. We can't really trust them. The Soviets uh, always doctored their numbers, and you know, it, it's unreliable information. So, so why even bother citing them? And what we wanted to say was that that Cold War mentality of discrediting Soviet scholarship on a systemic level in the academy exists even today. And so when you look at something like Putin and his popularity, it's a fact that he is very popular in Russia. And, you know, America say, well, you know, he he doctors the elections and he rigs them. And and that's why he's so popular. Maybe, you know, maybe he does do some work to eliminate opposition. I'm not going to doubt that. Um, but does he does he change the, the electoral numbers uh, in his uh, in his elections? No, he is he is immensely popular. He has been in the, in the past elections. It's just that, you know, uh, 80 percent approval rating in the United States is unheard of. So then, of course, it must be, uh, you know, corrupt. If Putin has 80 percent approval rating, of course, it can't be real because God forbid any American president ever be approved to that level. But, you know, when you study, again, the material basis of mm -hmm. Putin and who Putin is, mm -hmm. go back to the materialism of it. You can see that from 2000, from the end of the 1990s to today, mm -hmm. Putin has rebuilt Russia into not just an economic power, not just a military power, but uh, as a reputable power in this emerging multipolar world. It wouldn't have happened without Putin. Was your piece or was your were you being viewed as defenders of Putin? I wouldn't say, you know, we, we don't again, we're not coming down on on whether we we support or don't support Putin. And, and you know, I'm not really prepared to say that. I will say that, you know, we can recognize his popularity for one um, as objectively true. For two, we can recognize that um, he has built the Russian Federation into what it is in comparison to Yeltsin, right? Yeltsin was sort of a puppet for the West. He was always drunk. He was a, a shame for Russians uh, internationally. And, and Putin has sort of reclaimed that, that greatness, that, that identity um, that, that Russians had lost after 1990. So... Uh, we will say that. But more importantly, what we want to say is that, you know, whether you support Putin or not or whether you're pro-Ukraine or not, go back to the materialism of what happened in 1990. Go back to the privatization uh, of these states. You know, uh, 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 a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, Sopo, who also does the Reimagining Soviet Georgia podcast, just published an article in Jacobin on um, the disappearance of healthcare in Georgia after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and how, you know, Georgian healthcare is in sort of in shambles right now because uh, of what happened there uh, because of the privatization of healthcare. So go back to these material, not just causes, but effects, um, and then make your political judgments on, you know, whether Putin is Hitler incarnate based on that or whether it'll give you a sort of more sympathetic understanding of Russia's position vis-a-vis -vis NATO, Russia's position um, in Ukraine, Russia's position uh, in opposition to American uh, hegemony, etc.
Tell me how you really feel. I feel like I feel like I'm not even getting to the heart of it. I feel like if Brian were here, he, you know, he's a he's the real historian of um, uh, nation and memory. Checked, you have a few pieces of paper that say you can speak on this stuff. So it's true. I could say something. And um, you've lived there, and you speak the language, so I feel extremely confident with you in the driver's seat. Uh, now, have you guys faced any? Praise or criticism? If so, where did the praise come from? And if there was any backlash, what was the backlash thing? Let's start with the bright side. Have you guys had any positive comments? So, you know, as a as a piece that kind of puts an entire field on blast, on the spot, and is sort of, you know, the piece begins with describing what ACs is in order to set up the reader to kind of dig into the the implications of this whole decolonizing, the political implications of this whole decolonizing move. Um, we wanted the piece to circulate amongst academics, particularly um, people that were at ACs and who, you know, could speak on their own um, experience of it. And the positive feedback has been from mostly younger scholars who have said things like, you guys, thank you for saying this. You're putting into words things that I've wanted to say for a long time, but haven't known how to say it. Um, and, and other like, you know, forms of praise that, that have been really good and humbling. Um, you know, and everybody will say, this is really great. This is a, a an awesome interjection into the the historiography it's a real uh probing invitation for scholars to to reconceptualize and reintroduce materialism even though i might have a few disagreements they don't matter you know but they still appreciate the 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 effort mostly because you know not just the political implications of our argument but the sort of institutional implications of our argument is that um I don't know. I don't know how many listeners uh, have gone to graduate school for this kind of stuff. But uh, when you do, you uh, you have to pass what are called qualifying exams. Right. And qualifying exams for some people who might not know, it's typically it's three fields. So for me, for example, it was modern Russia, modern Europe and environmental history. And so you have these three fields. You create reading lists that are around 100 books for each field, and then you are to be tested on each reading list. This is how you learn the historiography, the major arguments that are in the, the field, in the history, et cetera, et cetera. And so part of what we were also arguing is that um, it's in that process that these culturally essentialist narratives are sort of reified and, and kind of instilled into emerging Western academics. Um, so, so that, you know, it's easier to kind of blend in than it is to deviate from what's been written already, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and so to hear from other scholars that like, I've felt this way but I don't know how to, I haven't known how to say it has been really um, uh, encouraging, I think, for both Brian and I. Now, the bad stuff. Um, 
I, I mentioned one already. There was somebody that uh, there was somebody that said that we didn't cite Soviet um, economists, and so that was to the detriment of our argument. This person said, um, which I think is kind of missing the point because again, we weren't making a, a historical argument. We're making a historiographical argument. It's two different things. We, there's no need to to cite a Soviet era uh, economist, um, as this person says. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the pushback that we got hasn't really been substantive at all. There's one character who's a sort of notorious liberal on on Twitter in this field who, you know, said that he has some fundamental disagreements and he'll hit us with a bigger response later and i don't actually expect him to to hit us with a bigger response you should get an email brother yeah um <laughs> probably not i mean because again our argument because we're calling out the political implications of this historiography is political um and it is implying in certain ways that uh, maybe we should dig deeper into what's going on in Ukraine and not just apply these essentialist narratives to it about, you know, whether that's on the left, Ukraine being Nazis and therefore all bad, or whether it's on in, in, in the sort of center liberal narrative, which is Putin is a, is a monster and, and Russians are oppressed and, uh, and all that. You know, those are not substantive material uh, views of the crisis and so that is a political argument um and so there are people that of course inherently are against that and they just want to believe and they just want to promote this narrative that um that putin is bad and Zelensky is the poor you know poor suffer uh, suffer um there's a funny comment uh, i'm gonna send a bigger response later is the nba hold me back of history <laughs> for that um you actually talk about kind of more of the materialist conditions that would cause the uh, i almost said the soviet union that would cause russia to even want to <clears throat> invade ukraine and you started way further back than 2014 2013 you're talking more about uh you started around 1990 i believe because you're talking about material resources such as trade routes and oil i'll try to do justice to this part um because you know this is where brian and i's brain together really came out as voltron yeah we 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 formed like a fucking power ranger when when it came (laughs) you can see the age differences in me and alex because he said voltron he's a power ranger uh uh I'm an environmental historian, right? So I understand the world in terms of political economy, natural resources, and climate change. And so when I look at geopolitics, I'm always looking at, well, where's the oil? Or where's the lithium? Or, you know, where's the gold? Where's the, where are the resources and why is this happening according to that? And so for my analysis of, you know, this, this um, uh, um, crisis in Ukraine is of course that the Soviet Union throughout the 1970s and 80s built a very robust and extensive uh, oil and natural gas infrastructure because that's what it was sort of pegging its economy to. 
Um, and so in, when 1990 happened, uh, the, the borders, the border of the Soviet Union collapsed and it broke into multiple borders, right? And so all these new deals had to be made between Russia uh, and the countries in which pipelines are passing through, not just pipelines, but also, you know, some people might already know about, you know, uh, Russia's guaranteed access to the Black Sea um, with, you know, through Ukraine that happened in, after 1990. All these deals um, that at that time in 1990, yes, climate change is sort of um, is being discussed, but it's not as, you know, Verso isn't yet publishing 100 books a year on climate change um, or however many they do now. I like to make that joke because I feel like it's all Verso talks about now for good reason, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, they had that one book about Foucault and acid in environment, I think. I don't remember. Oh, but anyway. Yeah, those some of those sound like uh, I, I will make those comments off here. But anyway, respect for Verso. I have I have plenty of Verso books, and I love Andreas. Paul. I just I, I just I just talked to uh, a a guy that gets published on Verso earlier today. I had a conversation about with Cedric Johnson about something I'm writing. I was picking his brain earlier today. Yeah, mad respect for Verso. I like him. For Ray Reed is published on Verso, so props to Verso. So that being said, that being said, some of those titles. It's true. <laughs> you know, I, I've had people invite me to like make a book pitch to Verso, and they give me like specific guidelines of like, you know, if you refer to to this theorist, then they're definitely going to take it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't want to try to fit that in. But in any case, so I understand this stuff environmentally, uh, and so I'm looking at the the breakup of the Soviet Union through these sort of resource deals. And as you go from 1990 to 2020, 2019, it's increasingly obvious that states are aware of the reality of resource scarcity, of the future that climate change has for us, and therefore the imperative to secure access to, unfettered access to natural resources. Um, whether that is Russia clamping down on its um, oil, uh, its access to oil and gas within Russia itself, or clamping down on potential threats to its oil and gas trade vis-a-vis places like Ukraine. Now, on the other hand, that's the environmental aspect. Brian is much more interested in the construction of the nation and of memory politics and how how and and you have to understand these things are related right so if if uh, environmental politics are political of course and and states make actions according to how they can achieve access to these natural resources the same should be said about how it inculcates a sense of nationality uh, and nation building in the process of doing that and so for example in the case of ukraine um uh, in 1990, there's this massive push led by the United States to not just privatize the Ukrainian economy, but also to rewrite and re-educate the Ukrainian people. Uh, and so I actually have a, a colleague of mine that's, that is working on a dissertation about this, about um, uh, Ukrainian diaspora in Canada and in the U.S., these are people that came to Canada in the U.S. 
in the 1970s, mostly dissidents who became academics. Um, and so thus started writing histories of the Ukrainian nation and such. In 1990, these people are invited back to a newly post-Soviet Ukraine, uh, and they are tasked with rewriting the textbooks to reflect Ukraine's national identity, new national identity. You got to understand that Ukrainian national identity is always and necessarily has to be in opposition to not just Russia, but now in opposition to the Soviet Union. Um, so you get this massive endeavor of rewriting history, right? And so, you know, in Georgia is the case that there are younger people that refer to um, Soviet Georgia as the, the Soviet occupation of Georgia. It, it's sort of, it's an example of rewriting the history. Um, but in any case, the same thing happens in Ukraine um, as a way of once you get once you inculcate those people with a sense of independent nation, nationalism, nationality, it sort of moves them away from Russia and the Soviet legacy. Right. Because I said it necessarily has to be in opposition to those things. Uh, and, and then you start to get not just the sort of toxic nationality that I'm sure all the listeners have heard about in, in places like Azov. Um, but then you get these states starting to align more with Western material interests. And so by 2014, you have, for example, uh, ExxonMobil and Shell going to Ukraine to kind of scope out the prospects for developing oil and gas infrastructure um, to, 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 to trade it with Europe, to become a major trader with Europe. Um, and you can imagine for Russia, the second biggest petro state in the world, in the world. Whose, whose economy is pegged on 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 fossil fuel industry that's a massive threat but now you have a ukrainian population who has been again inculcated with anti-russianism anti-sovietism um who now uh uh you you sort of have their support behind any any western-led endeavor that that would threaten russia's um material interests and so Again, these things and, 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 you know, Brian would be able to say a lot more about Georgia. If you listen to his podcast, it's not just about Soviet Georgia, but um, he has a lot of people that talk about this stuff on there. Um, but uh, this nation building, this reconstruction of national memory is tied to the material transformations that happen. And that is precisely what we wanted to get at in our article is to say, why are we just focusing on these essentialist national narratives about the place of Khachapuri in Georgia or Borsh in Ukraine or, you know, some other like, you know, this Ukrainian nationalist writer is the embodiment of uh, what it means to be Ukrainian. Like, who cares about that stuff? Let's look. Let's be the Marxist that we are and look at the material um, uh, conditions that created the world that we live in right now this is sort of where we were going. But as you say in your piece, you, you talk about the fact that when you do stray away from the consensus narrative, which is being taught by more, more and more people, they're on the doctorate committees, that leaves you guys as outsiders. Yeah. 
It's going to be harder to get a job. Uh, it's going to be harder to get published. I mean, all jokes aside, verso hay market, all jokes aside, you're not making that much money, even if you are published on verso. It's not Simon and Schuster, right? But you have to publish in academia, whether you're an adjunct or a department head. There's a reason why Gene Bajlan hasn't been on the show. There's a reason why it's hard to get Teray and Cedric on the show. These guys are professors mm-hmm. and they have to be writing. They have to be publishing. And the stuff that you guys aren't reading, trust me, it's not in Jacobin. <laughs> it's it's academic journals. How hard is it then for you to publish, to write, to even keep a job when you go against orthodoxy like this? I guess we'll find out. I mean, I will. Brian <laughs> Brian, Brian isn't uh, currently in academia. Um, he's an independent scholar. Um, but but I, I am. And I, I sort of occupy this um, weird middle place where, you know, uh, um, people who hate academics can hate me, even though I hate academics myself. Um, and so I, I'm sort of in this weird spot where um, I'm in the middle. You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm both the. I'm both an academic, but an anti-academic. Uh, and so I'm not friends with the people that hate academics because they hate me. And I'm also not friends with academics because I hate them. Um, and so it's sort of in between. Uh, it's. I wouldn't say that. It depends on where you're publishing. We, we, we talk about in in our field, the 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 cream of the crop in terms of publishing is um, uh, academic presses, and you have to pitch your books to those academic press editors at places like ACES at the conference. You know, they're all there. And I went, for example, and I talked to the editor from University of Pittsburgh Press. It's a great press that that publishes books on topics that uh, are relevant to me, science and technology and environment. Um, uh, But challenging this sort of orthodoxy, it puts you in opposition to all of the members of the field who are like, you know, those, those heavy hitters on Twitter, for example. So, you know, Brian has something like, I don't know, over a thousand followers and and I have a humble 200 Mm -hmm. uh, on, on Twitter. And the people that will say negative things about us or our article, they're in like 32,000, 40,000. You know, these are the big people that are on the news. Uh, these are writing journalist articles. And so they have a bigger soapbox than we do. Um, and so their criticism can get further than our arguments can. And when that happens, you're sort of, uh, you, you know, you're at risk for, for somebody, you know, if you're if you're like me and you're actively on the job market trying to get tenure somewhere, um, you know, somebody could run into you and be like, well, I saw this tweet that so and so had where they they, you know, ripped your argument apart. And you're like, well, I never saw it. You know, what I mean, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Does that make you have to? Well, and I'm sorry that we're we're kind of talking about this, but I do think it's important to the piece that you wrote because it's all about this this area of study right we're not just supposed to be here to talk about the history of the soviet union or contemporary russia and its relationship to ukraine um 
does that then force you to have to be a little more active on social media? I think um, maybe. So so Brian is pretty active on social media. Um, me, less so on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Instagram, um, although, but it's not my Instagram isn't academic at all. I purposely keep ne- things neither separate. is mine, which is why we can share memes. I, yeah, exactly. I, I keep the two separate so that I can shit talk freely on Instagram and, and it doesn't come back at me in any way. But in any case, um, uh, on Twitter, I, I do, you know, I, I do, I am active, but I'm not super active. I, again, I'm I a humble amount of uh, followers and, uh, I, I've never quite interacted well with the interface of Twitter either. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but the, it does have implications for, um, you, you know, the way that other scholars within our field and within history itself will kind of view us, right? Because now that this article is out, if they didn't already know, now it's obvious that we are Marxists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we are Marxists within a field that thought, as of 1990, that Marxism is dead. Not just Marxism politically, but theoretical Marxism, materialism, is dead. And what we're saying is, no, it, it, the, theoretically it did not die, or it shouldn't have anyway. And that the cultural turn that happened in the 90s was a political move to promote American hegemony uh, especially in the way that America uh, uh, cultivated national identities across post-Soviet space. And we want to go back. We want to sort of reverse that and say, well, let's get back to the materialism. Um, and when it comes to like applying for grants, you know, the, a lot of these grant uh, institutions are looking for places that also promote the American narrative because, you know, a lot of the funding sources of certain institutes, I'm not going to name any because, again, I don't want to get in trouble by them, but the funding of not just these institutes, but ACES itself is endowed by, you know, the American State Department. Um, Title Eight language grants that sends American scholars to the post-Soviet world is an American uh, uh, State Department grant. Fulbright is associated with the State Department, right? So all of these things are tied heavily to the United States. It thus uh, uh, cannot really challenge that American, that dominant American narrative. Uh, And so when you do and you apply for these grants, you're kind of viewed as straying too far away from it. And um, that's if you make it that far, right? If you apply for graduate school as a hyper Marxist and you, you know, your application is saying, I want to apply a material analysis to uh, uh, Menshevik, Georgia, <laughs> you might get laughed at, you, you know, your application will be approved because they'll just say something like, well, you know, uh, materialism, Marxism is, is sort of an outdated historiographical uh, uh, trajectory. And so, you know, that kind of stuff happens. I'm not worried about my own ability to get published because ultimately I'll find wherever I need to to get something out if I think it's important enough, which is why I created the Substack. So if 
your listeners would like me to live in Mexico, <laughs> please subscribe to the Substack so that I can live in Mexico and write my opinions that can offend everybody free of. Well, you know, we I was talking about this with uh, with my good friend Bert Cooper, um, who somehow has managed to I don't want to say infiltrate, but kind of infiltrate liberal circles. I mean, he gets to write for The Atlantic. He's published in The New York Times. He was on MSNBC. He's not my liberal friend, Bert. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, he, he goes, why do you think? Ibrahim X. Kendi and these people get these MacArthur Genius Grants. There's nothing. There's no socialist argument in how to be an anti-racist or stamp from the beginning. Mm-mm. Nicole Hannah-Jones gets one as well for 1619. You know, why do, do you think these people get them? So, I, I don't know. I, I think this is important. Someone says AMLO will welcome you. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you saw the AMLO stuff when we were leaving Mexico. Yeah. When you're, when you're going. So I also want to talk about this before we go. We're coming up on the on the hour. Um, you actually mentioned in your piece the Soviet Union and its relationship to the civil rights movement. I was going to say Black Americans. Let's just say the civil rights movement. That's a history that definitely doesn't get taught in U.S. schools. And there's a handful of people that have talked about it through the years. Robin D.G. Kelly, I think Hammer to Ho talks a little bit about that. Gerald Horn has definitely written about that. And uh, Sharice Bird-Stelly has a, a new book that you actually cite in your piece. Um, that talks about the relationship between black Americans and the Soviet Union. And you found some issue with people speaking at the conference, correct? About about that relationship. Yeah, that's right. There was a there was a panel specifically on uh race in the Soviet Union. Um one of the panelists uh was black and and she her her she's a PhD candidate, she's not yet, hasn't yet graduated, who's somebody that like, you know, we, Brian and I both follow on, on Twitter and have some level of respect for, um, but we, we have some fundamental disagreements with her. And so uh, those disagreements really came up in this panel that Brian and I coincidentally were both at, um, you know, we didn't really go to the same panel. Wait, you said you had a disagreement with Sharice or you had a disagreement with someone else? No, with this other scholar that, okay. was, that was presenting a paper on uh, 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 Soviet views of American racism and uh, Angela Davis. And as she said in the beginning, she was using the analytical framework of Afro-pessimism to talk about it. Um <laughs> And so if you go on, if you go on our article, whether it's on Left East or on the Substack, you'll see an image of the Scottsboro um, uh, persecutions that a Soviet artist made. And so one of the arguments in this panel was using that image and she was uh, pointing out the ways in which the black men on the image are depicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're depicted like pretty scary. Uh, 
want to have it up here. Um, they're depicted pretty scary. You no, know, they their their faces are are in silhouette. They look obviously distraught. Um, uh, and there's a lot of stereotypes of blackness that are depicted in this image. Uh, and so her conclusion there was then to say, well, the Soviets were racist then. That, um, but that's also, you know, sorry to cut you off, but that's kind of the same conclusion that uh, Wilderson comes to mm-hmm. in the Afro pessimist. I don't remember if he says it in the book. I know he says it in an interview because he's he was in, he, you know, he says he was a communist and he was in Soviet Russia for so long and they made some comment about you're cool, but you can't get with my daughter or something like that. Yeah, but so. So she, so from this uh, sort of image of, of of how a Soviet artist depicted um, black men, she then inferred that the Soviet Union was a racist place. Um, and you know, she had mentioned that another way that it materialized was the way that the Soviet Union uh, really focused on and spotlighted Angela Davis uh, as a a black woman, right, a black American woman. And so, you know, Angela Davis came to the Soviet Union. They made a big media fuss about it. Uh, you know, uh, Angela Davis spoke to the Soviet people and and blah, blah, blah. And, and her argument, again, was that the way that they really focused on Angela Davis is, again, a reflection of Soviet racism. You know, and there was somebody in the crowd. It wasn't even Brian or I. Somebody in the crowd raised their hand and they were like, Aren't you leaving out the fact that Angela Davis was a very active member of the CPUSA, that she was a member of the the Communist Party of the United States? And that's why the Soviet people really focused on Angela Davis, not because of her race or her identity uh, in that in that way. Um, And so that, you know, that was one one argument that we that that we agreed with and that we wanted to bring up. And the other one is, you know. She, the the scholar also referred to um, uh, there's a there's a case of a, a a black American who gets beat in the Soviet Union um, mm-hmm. to death, uh, but you know the scholar conveniently left out that it was Americans in the Soviet Union who beat this black man, um, not Soviets that beat the black man. Um, and so again, like looking at these kind of essentialist narratives of of culture through the eyes of Afro-pessimism, which is kind of an American-centric analytical framework, and applying that to the Soviet Union isn't an act of decolonization, right? You have to first work out a theoretical framework of race in the Soviet Union to talk about how the Soviets viewed race. You can't just take American race relations and then try to apply them to the Soviet Union because it's a different context. And we're not saying that people in the Soviet Union weren't racist. Sure, they no doubt are. I mean, you see it, you see it, you go to Russia today and you can hear how certain people talk about people from Uzbekistan and stuff like that. Um, the racism is definitely there. But again, it's a different theoretical framework that needs to be worked out, not just, you know, let's import this American framework. Mm-hmm and try mm-hmm. to understand it in the Soviet context. And so that's what we were really railing against in, in this article. And that's what we really found faulty with, with this 
with the analysis itself. And so, again, going back to that poster of the Scottsboro um, uh, prisoners, you know, to say that the Soviet Union was racist based on this photo is uh, based on this picture is missing the point that the artist was trying to depict how Americans viewed black men, not how he or Soviet people viewed black men, but the ways in which Americans viewed black men. So it's missing that point that this poster was fundamentally a criticism of the United States in American race relations. Uh, it wasn't reifying American racial tropes, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. And it kind of you know, speaks, this is the reason why I wanted to bring that up in the article, is that there's so much projection of American politics onto your, not yours, but people's theories on the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. how they viewed race, and that's just not how you, you look at history. But then again, there's a reason why we call ourselves Marxists, and it's not because we get cool t-shirts. Um, we have a super chat from JB. I want to read this out loud to you. Excellent episode tonight. Alex is great. Thanks, JB. If you really think I'm great, subscribe to that Substack. Look at you. Know you. I mean? Look at you. Just like a salesman. This is it's not a, he's not a real Marxist. I'm trying. I'm trying to live in Mexico. You know. Fucking right. I think the guy next door to me moved out. To be totally honest with you, I think the cat next door to me is gone, and they just built a new bathroom. So you would have a bigger place than mine with two bathrooms and a sunroom. I don't think I could live next to you. Why? We would just grow out all the time. <laughs> You'd be like, Ben Burgess lived down here, and, and all he did was he, once I told him that the, the door, you know, you know, the breezeway door to the patio was open, he would just go with his dog and walk on the patio and just write. Yeah. I mean, I would show up at your door knocking and with, like, some dumb excuse in my underwear, just be like, you got any flour? <laughs> You're like, no. Again, ben, ben came over, you know, and uh, we I have a very, if you know me, you stayed here. I don't lock the door. So it's like, just knock and say you're, you're, you're coming in and uh, fucking, you know how it works TV. Hell yeah, that's true. You know I, I wouldn't you know have to pay for, I just use your internet too. I don't have to pay for shit. Oh, you'd be one of them cats. <laughs> <laughs> If I'm on your IP address, then I can share your Netflix account, too. <laughs> I, I canceled all that shit since you guys came. Oh, that's good. I'm trying I don't, to I don't have Netflix either. I, I, I kind of want to. So I want to watch the, the Dave Chappelle special, but I also want to watch the there's a new like series on World War Two that some oh. some historian friends of mine have vouched for. So kind of curious about that. Uh, side note, um, Adam Curtis has a new documentary that hit the states it came out last year in the bbc two two years ago two years ago in the bbc um i didn't see it until recently it's on youtube now i think a new thing about soviet uh soviet russia oh cool i'll have to look that up i think it's kind of a deeper take on hypernormalization. you know kind of his to me a lot of his thesis is like everything sucked in the soviet union <laughs> <laughs> Which is untrue. There you go. Yeah, that's that's Curtis's take right there. <laughs> untrue, but zone, yeah. you know, 
Of course, of course, things suck. You know, it's sort of like I don't know how many of your listeners have kids, but I know you do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that like your kids are harder on you than they are on anybody else. And it's because they love you the most. So mm-hmm. people are more critical of their home country um, because they're the most comfortable with it. They know it the best. And so when you meet like, you know, Russians who live in the U.S. who really hate the United States, I'm not saying it's because they they love Russia or whatever, but it's because they know it best. It's the same reason why Americans are hypercritical of the U.S. We're supposed to be. Um, it's unfortunately our country, you know, um, and so those how that position you know most of them came moved here in the 1980s or 1990s -hmm. in terrible terrible economic conditions when they moved here that cultural memory that economic memory of how they how they were living in the 80s and 90s that's what they brought with them and so they look back at life in the soviet union like oh it was terrible yeah it was in the 80s and it was because economic reforms were going really poorly it was in the 90s because privatization was a disaster. But if you poll anybody that was alive in the Brezhnev period, for example, mm-hmm. all the st- statistics show that um, that was the, the height of uh, uh, standards of living in the Soviet Union. People were happy under Brezhnev. So, you know, the, the whole like Soviet Union was a terrible place to live. I don't fully buy it. Um, I mean, I got to watch it, but definitely he always talks a lot about the the, the years up until the fall. So the mid 80s to the the early 90s. Right. He always kind of talks about that time. Uh, The book or the the movie Hypernormalization is based off a book. Um, I've only read the intro to the book, uh, but it's interesting, you know, kind of talking about that that time frame. That 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 Gorbachev time frame basically is what he's talking about the Gorbachev years and yeah and you know different levels of poverty and and it is one of those you know using found footage and I've only seen about 25 minutes of it I haven't got a chance to really sit down and and soak it in as I've been working on some some other stuff and I can't I can't actually have fun you know how that is right Brezhnev also had fucking massively sexy eyebrows <laughs> I'm sort of jealous of them well look if anybody wants to read uh, Alex and Brian's piece there's definitely links in the chat there's definitely a link in the description to the piece sign up for a sub stack I have signed up for a sub stack I'm going to the champagne room with the rest of the patrons. Um, we're going to be talking about the Cat Williams and Shannon Sharp interview. It is definitely conversation and giggle worthy. Toussaint will be joining us in the champagne room. Uh, Alex, you're going to sleep or are you joining us? I could join you. I haven't watched the Cat Williams thing, but if you're playing clips from it, I'd love to. See oh, that. you know, I'm playing clips from it. Let me. Um, yeah yeah yeah. do your thing do your thing i gotta sign off thank you guys so much if you would like to watch this champagne room there is one easy way become a patron for as little as three dollars a month thirty dollars for the year you can have access to champagne rooms past and present join us for movie nights 
It's all yours. Also, you make sure that we can continue to give you this kind of programming at least three nights a week, more often than not, four nights a week. <laughs> it's been really hard to get to four nights a week. Um, oh, and don't forget to listen to, because Alex is sending me messages right now, <laughs> Brian's podcast, Reimagining Soviet Georgia. So I want to check that out. So we're going to try to get Brian back on. Maybe a weekend is easier since he is in an entirely different country. Um, that always makes it harder. But thank you guys so much. I will see you in the champagne room. And we are out. <laughs>